You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started together. So let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you once again for the chance that we have to come together as believers and to worship you today. God, I thank you that you have given us your word in a language that we can read and understand. So God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. God, that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds to receive what you want to teach us. God, that we would be able to understand scripture in the context that you've given it to us. Um, God, I pray that we would be encouraged and convicted where we need to be. And that ultimately, God, as we um, continue looking into your word about the end times, God, that it would provide the assurance and hope that you have designed it to do for us. And uh, God, I pray that you would prepare us as we get ready to approach um, the rest of First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. God, that we would be able to see those um, passages in light of how you want us to see those. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for the past few weeks, we have stalled out on getting into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because there's such disagreement about what these verses mean and what they mean for us as the church. And so we've tried to, uh, instead of jumping into those verses right away, we've tried to build a foundation for uh, why we're going to approach them the way that we're going to approach them. I told you that there's two schools of thought that we can approach 1 Thessalonians 4 as um, the traditional rapture of the church before a lot of the end time stuff happens. Or it can be approached as the second coming of Jesus after a lot of the um, end type stuff that we've grown up hearing about, tribulation, antichrist, those type of things. And we see 1 Thessalonians 4 as the second coming with Jesus returning to set everything right. Now I told you up front that we are going to approach these passages as the second coming. And I've been trying to build a foundation for why we're going to do so. Um, in getting into that, we've tried to, and I've tried to constantly each week rally us around the things that we can agree on. Because I've told you, you don't have to agree with me that First Thessalonians 4 is about the second coming. You can believe that it's about the rapture, and we can still be in good fellowship, and we can still glean a lot of the things that we're supposed to glean from that passage, even though we disagree about the timing of it. Some things that we're going to agree on that we can rally around that we've talked about already is that Jesus' return is definitely certain. That we don't have to question and doubt and wonder if Jesus is coming back. That that part is definitely certain. And we can agree about that. We can agree on the, the fact that he's coming visibly and physically. That like the angels tell the disciples, he will return just like he left this earth. That there's going to be a resurrection of believers and unbelievers. Believers to eternal reward. Unbelievers to eternal um, judgment. We can agree on that. We can disagree about how that plays out and how that looks exactly. But we can agree on the overall aspect that believers get eternal reward with Christ forever, that uh, unbelievers do not, that they are judged for their sin, that they are under the wrath of God forever. Um, we've looked at the fact that we can agree that death will be defeated. There's coming a time in history where death will be no more. Um, and we will enjoy um, uh, a culture and environment where there's no more suffering, there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow, there's no more death. And then lastly, we said that all of God's plans will be accomplished. That while we have a lot of confusion and um, misunderstanding at times about what God wants to do, what we can trust is that God is going to do what he wants to do. That God's plans don't get messed up, that he doesn't have to react and, and change things based on how things play out. 
that if he intends to bring a literal antichrist onto this world, he's going to do so. If he plans to rapture the church before the tribulation, he's going to do so. That what God wants to do is going to happen, even if we're wrong about what we think God wants to do. Some things that we're going to disagree on, the timing of Jesus' return when he actually comes back. Is there a rapture? Is there not a rapture? Um, When did the book of Revelation happen or when will it happen? Has it already happened? Is everything going to happen in the future? Um, We can disagree about that and still be in good fellowship and agree about the things that we need to agree on. And then lastly, we're going to disagree probably about the millennial reign in Revelation 20. When does that actual kingdom of Christ happen? Does it happen in the future? Is it happening now? Um, Will it happen before Jesus returns, as the post-millennialists would say, that the church is going to be so effective in sharing the gospel that it literally ushers in a utopia type of environment where the world is predominantly Christian? Um, We can disagree about that. And there's there's good people that... um, that fellowship together, good pastors that teach at the same conferences that disagree about some of these big things. And so um, I think they serve as a good example to us how we can agree to disagree on some of the less important things while rallying around the things that we need to agree on. Um, I told you over the past couple of weeks we've approached, I'm giving you some reasons why we're going to approach First Thessalonians as a non-rapture Passage. The first reason that we looked at a couple of weeks ago has to do with the relationship of Israel to the church. The relationship of Israel to the church. Now, I'm not going to go through all that again. The podcast is available if you didn't get to be with us that day. We went into it extensively. Um, But my conviction in looking at Scripture is that God is saving one people made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, a multitude from all nations. That's the picture that I see in Scripture, that God is saving one people, believing Jews and Gentiles, a multitude made up of all nations. And we looked at the passage in Romans where uh, God takes believing Israel and he grafts into that tree believing Gentiles. And the picture that I see in Scripture is that we've got like a one group of people being brought together. Ephesians talks about racial barriers being destroyed by Christ. And he's, he's uniting us into the body of Christ. Um, it was alarming to me that I was reading and studying about the tribulation this week. I came across one guy, and this doesn't mean that everybody who um, would believe in a rapture would say this. But the guy wrote in his book, he said that um, he obviously sees Israel and the church separate. He believes a large amount of Israel will be saved after the rapture. Okay, we've talked about that, that part of the reason for a rapture is because people see Israel and the church separate. And he made this statement in his book. He said, Jesus will come, rapture the church, a large amount of Israel will get saved, but they are not part of the body of Christ. To me, that's such a scary statement to say something like that, that there are believers who get saved but are not part of the body of Christ. Now, again, that's not to say that, that everybody that believes in a rapture would make that statement, but this is a, a leading authority guy on this position, and he makes that statement in his book and says, these people will get saved in the tribulation, but they are not part of the body of Christ because the body of Christ has been raptured away. Um, 
that, that's scary to me in relation to what I see in, in the rest of Scripture, that God is uniting his people together, that he doesn't want to see that separation. But we can agree to disagree on that. That's not something that we have to agree on. But it is why we are going to approach this as a second coming passage, because of the fact that I really see Israel and the church being united together as one. The church doesn't replace Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. We get a better understanding of what the church is in the New Testament. It's an expansion of Israel. Israel, our understanding of Israel grows in the New Testament to where we see it's not just Jewish people. It's also Gentiles that are believing. But we also get clarification that it's not all Jewish people. It's believing Jewish people that are considered true Israel. Um, and again, I would encourage you to look, look at the podcast and, and listen to that so you can kind of see some of that argument from Scripture. Secondly, what we looked at last week, the believer's hope seems to be in the second coming without mention of a rapture. Last week we looked at several, we looked at at least three different things that we can agree on. That these things will happen when Jesus comes back. And then I told you why I see that as support for no rapture. The first thing we looked at last week, and according to 2 Thessalonians 1, is that when Jesus comes back, he's bringing justice to all situations. 2 Thessalonians 1 says that when Jesus comes back, he is going to relieve his people that have been suffering here on this earth, and he's going to bring justice and judgment towards those who have been causing the suffering. So he seems to be coming back to make things right, to bring justice. And that's an encouragement to us that God's going to set everything right. And I told you that I see that as support for no rapture because that passage really seems to indicate that that happens at the same point in history. That the relief for his people from their suffering and the judgment and justice on those who are causing the suffering seem to happen at the same time. Secondly, we looked at that, the fact that in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus comes back, things will be renewed and made right. And then when we look at that, we also see that creation is waiting to be made right. We talked about how creation is groaning and longing for the day of redemption when God comes back for his people. And so that creation will be made right. And I told you that it seems to indicate that creation at least believes that when Jesus comes back to give glorified bodies, which rapture people would believe, that when Jesus comes back, we get glorified bodies at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, we're caught up in the, into the clouds, we're changed, we get new bodies. The creation in Romans um, 8 says creation is personified by Paul and creation is saying we can't wait for that day to happen so that we'll be fixed as well. And I told you it doesn't seem likely that creation would have to wait an additional seven years of tribulation and then an additional thousand years of a millennial reign to be made right. Because the rapture position would say that the earth doesn't get fixed until at least a thousand plus years after Christians get glorified bodies. So the timing seems to be at the same time, not separated by such a huge gap of time. Um, and then lastly, we said that in Second Peter, the encouragement to us is that Jesus delays his coming. Why? So that people can repent. It says the time of delay is for repentance. It says that, that Jesus desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And the, the, the teaching there is that it's implied that when Jesus comes back, there's no more time for repentance. That he's not coming back. Why? Because he wants those to come to repentance. The implication is that when he does come back, there's no more time for repentance. 
which means it's hard to believe that there would be uh, a multitude that can't be counted according to the book of Revelation that gets saved during the time of Revelation, during the time of tribulation. How could it be that Jesus would not come back because he's giving mankind the opportunity to repent, then he comes back and then a multitude that can't be counted repent after he comes back? It seems to lose the the oomph to that teaching that Jesus is not coming back so that we have the opportunity to repent if we can still repent after he comes back. Today, continuing to build off this, why are we approaching this as the second coming and not the rapture? Number three, the Bible's teaching on tribulation. The Bible's teaching on tribulation. So these are reasons that we're approaching it this way. That From scripture, I see Israel and the church being united together as one. They're not replacing each other. They're being brought together to show that God has one people. That the hope of the believer seems to be the hope of Jesus coming back the second time. Without really an explicit mention of the rapture. But then even more today, the teaching on tribulation. What the Bible has to say on tribulation, to me, removes any uh, need for a rapture based on what we can see from Scripture. Alright? And again, this is stuff that we can disagree about, but this is why we're going to approach it in the way that we're going to approach it. Before we get into that, I want to give you some arguments for um, the rapture before the tribulation. These are some arguments that people who believe in a rapture hold to in support for why there will be a rapture. These aren't necessarily textual arguments, meaning a verse doesn't ex- you know, clearly say this. It's more of a, um, a reasoning aspect. And I'm going to give you some arguments for a non-rapture that aren't textual at the end today. But some non-textual arguments for the rapture that kind of encourage people to believe in the rapture. Number one is, it's a time for God's wrath on the earth. It would be inappropriate for the church to be here. So people that believe in a rapture would say that the tribulation time is a time for God's wrath. Now as Christians, we don't get God's wrath. So if it's a time of wrath, it would be inappropriate for us to be here. One of the major verses for support of a rapture is Revelation 3.10. We'll look at this passage again today, but just to kind of get us going. Revelation 3.10 says, this is an instruction specifically to the church in Philadelphia. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So a, a rapture position would look at the fact that this church is told, because of its faithfulness to God, that they won't be here for this trial. And by, um, by what Jesus says here, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. They interpret that as he's going to take them away. Rapture. He's going to remove them completely so that when the trial comes on the earth, they're not even here. All right? A second argument for the rapture is that if Jesus raptures the church, then there are saved people, Jewish people, in the tribulation time to enter the millennial kingdom. Stay with me on this. Revelation 20 talks about a millennial reign where Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years. Okay? The rapture position says that Jesus comes back for his church. There's a time of tribulation where a lot of Israelites get saved. Jesus comes back, the second coming, destroys, kills unbelievers. 
He would then usher in those saved Jewish people to a literal kingdom on this earth. There are people like John Piper who believe that, but they don't believe in a rapture. So they would believe that church goes along, church gets saved, Jesus comes back. All Christians are caught up in the air. They all get new glorified bodies. Unsaved people are judged, killed, removed. And then there's a millennial reign. But what's the problem with what I just described to you? Because the millennial reign, they believe people get married, people die. What would be the problem with a non-rapture but still believing in a millennial kingdom? There's nobody to go into the millennial kingdom. Right? Like if Jesus comes back and the church goes and gets new bodies, unsaved people are judged and destroyed and removed. There's nobody alive to go into the kingdom, get married, die, and grow up and have a little earthly kingdom. So the rapture position says we need a rapture so that there's people to go into that kingdom. Okay? Um, I'm sorry if that's really confusing. Last argument. Jesus can come at any time like he said. There's nothing left that needs to happen first. The rapture position supports the idea that Jesus says he can come back at any time. Nothing has to happen. We don't have to wait on an antichrist. We don't have to wait on a tribulation. We don't have to wait on anything because Jesus can just come at any time and rapture his church. Then all those signs of his coming, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, gospel being preached to all nations, all those things could happen after the rapture. We don't have to wait on those things to happen. So when Jesus says, I can come at any time, he really can come at any time. All right, any questions about that? Because that... If you haven't looked at this and studied this before, I know that can be really confusing because I just threw a lot at you. So if there's questions about that, I want to answer them before we move forward so that you feel like you're on the same page with me. Oh, we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah, we're back. that's what we're coming up to. I didn't really leave you space for all that stuff. I just told you. Yeah, I haven't really come across anybody that would say people can't get saved during the tribulation time. Because the main motivation for believing in the rapture is the separation of Israel and the church. And rapture people would say this is when God deals with Israel. This is when God saves Israel. Paul describes the, the massive salvation of Israel in Romans. And this is when rapture people would say that happens. It happens during the tribulation time. So, yeah, people get saved because that's kind of the motivation for seeing a need for a rapture is that God has to deal with Israel during the tribulation time. And you can't get around the fact that in Revelation, and we'll look at it in a minute, in Revelation 7, it says that a multitude gets saved during the great tribulation. How do rapture people That the absence of the church will confirm to people that had heard the gospel that the gospel is true. So family members that you've shared the gospel with will wake up one day, you're not here anymore. Wow, what they said was true. Jesus did come back and it will lead them to the gospel. Um, we've talked about how they think that the Holy Spirit won't be as active as he is now. And I've come across some people who explain it more like the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't seem to indwell people the same way he does after Pentecost. 
And so some rapture people believe that the Holy Spirit goes back to functioning like he did in the Old Testament, where he's still active, but not active in the same way. So there's still the ability for someone to get saved through the work of the Holy Spirit, just like Old Testament saints did, but not being indwelt the same way, I guess, as a New Testament believer. Other questions that maybe gives you before we move on? Stop me at any point because no question's too silly when it comes to this stuff. Because um, like I said, if you're not studying this regularly, which I don't expect all of us to be, you're not seeing this as regularly as I am, so it, it may be confusing and it may leave you with questions because it leaves me with questions. So you're not alone. All right. Um, so those are some arguments for the rapture. I want to show you some arguments against those arguments. All right. Some point to agree on. And again, this is where I really want us to, to put our attention. These are things that we agree on whether we believe in a rapture or don't believe in a rapture. Point to agree on. Struggle and difficulty. Struggle and difficulty are the common circumstances for believers during the present period of history. We can agree on this. That according to scripture, struggle and difficulty are the common environment that a Christian should be experiencing right now. Okay, so we can disagree on when the tribulation happens. Has the tribulation already happened? Is it going to happen in the future? Is it only going to happen for uh, people that aren't raptured? We can disagree about that. What we have to agree on is that tribulation is the common experience for believers right now, according to Scripture. Um, Underneath that, you can, you can just add any of the stuff that I'm talking to you about. And if you need me to give it to you later, I can. Uh, we can expect hostility, imprisonment, and ridicule. I mean, we're told that in Scripture, that we can expect hostility, imprisonment, and ridicule. A couple of passages that kind of affirm that for us. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 6. We've already talked through this. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. So Paul talks to this church. He says, praise God you got saved. Praise God you got saved and you're still pursuing Christ despite the affliction that you're experiencing. In Acts, verse 20, Acts chapter 20, verse 22 through 23, Paul talks about the fact that he is going to a city and he has already been told by the Holy Spirit that imprisonment, and hostility await him there. In Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. The public ridicule that comes from following Christ is something that we should expect as believers. Blessing and encouragement is offered to believers in the midst of this type of environment. For your reward is great in heaven. Look at Matthew chapter 5 if you want to jot these verses down. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. 
The church has promised persecution. The encouragement is that we get an eternity with Christ of no persecution. We get an eternity of goodness. So the temporary persecution that we endure right now is nothing in light of what we get in the future. We said that the lost world gets to kind of do what they want to do right now, but they get an eternity of God's wrath. So when we compare the two, much better to experience trials and difficulties now in relation to what we get for eternity. And that's what Jesus tells his disciples. Your reward, your reward is great in heaven. John 16.33 I have said these things to you that in me you have, may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So what we're seeing is, is that the scriptures promise tribulation to God's people. So it would be definitely incorrect for us to say, even if you believe in a rapture, that God's people are never experiencing tribulation. Because we definitely get tribulation. That, that's promised to us by Jesus and his disciples in their writings. We are promised tribulation if we are truly God's people. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 10, do not fear what you were about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus is telling this church in Smyrna that, hey, some of you guys are about to die. You're about to be thrown into prison and you're going to die. Be faithful unto death and you will get the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. So the promise to this church is that they were going to get tribulation. They were going to experience some real difficulties in the, in the days ahead. And they were challenged and encouraged to persevere. Persecution is a sign that we are part of the body of Christ. Not only is it promised, it's kind of given to us as a, as a piece of evidence that we are truly Christians. In John 15 verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we what? Does anybody know? It's true that we're Christians. It's true that we're heirs, provided that we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul promises persecution and suffering for true believers. It's a sign that we're truly part of the body of Christ. Some other passages that you could jot down. 2 Timothy 3.12. 1 Peter 2.21. 1 Peter 4.14. 2 Timothy 3.12. 1 Peter 2.21 and 1 Peter 4.14. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
It's a sign that we're a part of the body of Christ. The encouragement is that difficulty is a tool God uses to grow his people. The promise isn't just that you'll be persecuted, you'll be experiencing tribulation, you will suffer. Sorry. That's not the message that we get from Jesus. We get those promises, but then we get the assurance that in his sovereignty, he uses those things for our good. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of the believer. Even persecution, suffering, and tribulation. That's the encouragement. Is that when Satan and the wicked feel like they are winning against us by persecuting us, what they don't realize is they are actually making us more like Christ. God is using that suffering to sanctify us. We see this in uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering leads to hope in the return of Jesus Christ. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7 is another great verse to look at as well. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. Difficulty is a tool that God uses in the life of the believer to make him more like Christ. Tribulation should be anticipated until we are with Christ. Acts chapter 14. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Remember, they're, they're traveling around planting churches and then they're doubling back around and continuing discipleship with them. So they come back to these places, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How does Paul say that we enter God's kingdom? Through tribulation. It's a promised thing for God's followers. We enter through tribulation. In Hebrews 11, 35 through 40. This is talking about people in the Old Testament, the Hall of Faith passage in the author of Hebrews is kind of summing up everything here at the end. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Author of Hebrews says, Old Testament saints were faithful. 
They were faithful, but they didn't inherit everything that's promised to them. Why? Because they're waiting on everybody in the New Testament to catch up. Once God has gathered all of his people, then we inherit everything that's promised to us. You would have a hard time convincing these people that were sawn in two that tribulation is not in store for God's people. You would have a hard time convincing the disciples who were being killed for their faith, Peter being crucified upside down after watching his wife be killed. You would have a hard time getting down and talking to Peter and saying, isn't it great that the church doesn't have to experience tribulation? Peter would say, I don't know how it can get any worse than this right now. Tribulation, suffering, and difficulty is the normal pattern for believers all throughout history. It was true in the Old Testament when they were being sawn in two and thrown into the lion's dens. And it's been true in the New Testament. Since the time of Jesus, people have been suffering for naming his name. It's a normal occurrence for people that follow Christ. Now, why do I think this supports no rapture? Well, for one, we've seen that because tribulation is a part, a normal part of the believer's life, we don't have to, we don't have to find a way for us not to be here for a tribulation because we've been promised tribulation. Okay? But first of all, Jesus prays that we would be guarded but not taken out. Look in John 17, 15. You remember this is the, the time when Jesus is praying in the garden before he experiences the crucifixion. And he specifically prays for future disciples. I mean, it's crazy. Jesus prays for our church in the garden. He's praying specific prayers for people that will come down the road and accept him as their savior. He says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, Jesus is making a contrast here. He's praying to God the Father. Okay? He's praying to God the Father. Verse 14, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because you were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus says, God, I'm not praying that you take your church out of here. I'm praying that you guard them in the midst of everything that they're going to experience. Now, he's not talking about the tribulation time here. What I want you to see is the two words that he uses here. If we were to see them in Greek, he uses a Greek word that means basically to be taken away, to be raptured. Jesus says, I'm not praying that you do that. I'm praying that you guard them, that you protect them. The word that Jesus uses for guard and protect them is the same word used in Revelation 3.10. Remember Revelation 3.10, the promise to Philadelphia. The promise to Philadelphia, you're going to not have to experience this trial that's about to come on the earth. Right? Revelation 3.10, let's go back there and look at that. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I mean, this is a huge support text for the rapture. That what it means in keeping them from that trial is to remove them. The problem with that is that this Greek word is the same Greek word that Jesus uses when he says, guard them, don't take them out. Keep them from the trial is the same Greek phrase for guard them in the midst of what they're going to experience. 
to me that really crumbles this verse as being a rapture support verse when you compare it to what Jesus prayed. Because if John, in writing Revelation, had wanted to, if Jesus, in writing Revelation, had wanted to, he could have used the Greek word about taking them out of this world. If he wanted to communicate rapture, if he wanted to communicate escape out of this world, you would expect him to use the other word. And he doesn't. He uses the exact same word that Jesus used in the garden, guard them, protect them as it goes on around them. Um, if God needs to take his people away from wrath, why are there so many of his people here during the tribulation? Remember I told you a support for the rapture is that this is about wrath and God's people shouldn't be here for wrath. The only problem is, is that Revelation 7 Verse 9 says there's a whole lot of God's people here for the tribulation. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Skip down to verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. To me, it's hard to argue that this is a time of wrath, and God's people can't be here. When a multitude that can't even be counted are here. A multitude that can't even be counted are here. Because we would say that these names have been written in the book of life for all, all time. Remember we looked at that passage before that, that our names have been in the book of life since before the foundation of the world. So these aren't people that get saved as, a, as kind of a second thought by God. God always intended to save these people during the tribulation. So to me, it doesn't make sense to say that God's people can't be here for this time when there's a ton of God's people here for this time. Um, then the last section here, last thing under this. The encouragement seems to be that Jesus is coming to deal with our persecutors, not to take us from them. Remember in 2 Thessalonians 1, when Jesus comes, he brings justice. He relieves his people he brings justice on those who were bringing the affliction. But it seems to happen at the same time. It's not that Jesus comes back and the relief is, get us out of here. It seems to be that he comes in the midst of us enduring this and he deals with those who are persecuting us. Some reasons why I would think that the strong teaching, the strong promise about tribulation lends us towards seeing not a rapture. There doesn't seem to be a need for a rapture if we see how much talk there is about tribulation in the Bible. The next point to agree on. Great tribulation and apostasy are characteristic of the time before Jesus returns. Great tribulation and apostasy are characteristic of the time before Jesus returns. Can anybody tell me what apostasy is? Falling away. Someone who... Um, claims to follow Christ, claims to be a Christian that turns their back on Jesus. We would say they don't lose their salvation. It's just that they were never saved. They were never saved. 
that they initially think they're responding to the gospel. Yeah, I'm in. Sign me up. Then they fall away from the faith and they show themselves to not really be a Christian. That's what apostasy is. Great tribulation and apostasy are characteristic of the time before Jesus returns. We can agree on that. The Bible describes a time of the worst tribulation. Jeremiah 37. If you want to jot these passages down, these are the passages that strongly support a great tribulation. Jeremiah 37 talks about Jacob's distress. But it's going to be an awful time. But it talks about people being saved out of that time. Jeremiah 37. Daniel 12, 1. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So there's a great time of tribulation, a time that um, is unlike any other time of tribulation. But people that are written in the book will be saved during that time. Daniel 12, verse 1. We see that same wordage used by Jesus in Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 21. All the crimes should encourage you to pray this week that we figure out our facility situation. You know, like this is a constant reminder. Hey, we need wisdom about how to handle this. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 21, this whole chapter is called the um, Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus talking on the Mount of Olives, therefore it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, It's pretty lengthy. We're going to look at a couple of sections of it. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Same word is being used in Daniel. There's a time of tribulation coming that's unlike any other time of tribulation in history. Okay? Um, Some other parallel passages, Mark 13, 19 through 20, Luke chapter 21, Revelation 3.10, which we've already looked at, that trial that comes on the earth. Revelation 7, 13 through 14, we've already looked at that great tribulation. That's where we get the idea of a great tribulation coming. Okay? Few passages that talk about a great tribulation. And they're very clear. It's, a, it's an intense time of persecution. It's an intense time of suffering. When you talk about We're not looking yet as far as what's going to happen during this time. We're going to look at that more when we get into 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. I don't, want to, I don't want to deal with those passages too much right now because we're going to get to them. So, yeah, we're going to explain that more. What I'm trying to show is that um, we're promised tribulation and we're also promised a great time of tribulation. And I think we see both in that, that God will bring... Um, difficulty on this earth, and in the midst of that difficulty, those that aren't Christians will bring difficulty on his church. Okay? So I think you would have both going on there, and I think you would also have God's people being present during God's judgment 
but not being exposed to God's judgment, just like the children of Israel were in Egypt. They were there for the plagues. Some of the plagues affected them, but a large portion of the plagues did not. Specifically, what's weird is that the darkness didn't affect them. That it was so dark for three days that the Egyptians couldn't see in front of them, but we're told that there was plenty of light over in Goshen where Israel was hanging out. So I think you can see some, some ways that God's wrath can be poured out on the earth without it affecting God's people. Well, we're going we're gonna to look more in depth when we get to that passage in 2 Thessalonians about what actually happens during this time. Um, all right, so I gave you the passages about the tribulation. The difficulty is determining how much of these passages deal with the fall of Jerusalem. In Matthew 24, 1, this is where the difficulty in interpreting these passages comes into play. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now there's multiple questions going on here. Jesus just told them the temple is going to be destroyed. So they say, uh, when's that going to happen? And when's, when are you coming back? And Jesus begins to describe what seems to be two different accounts. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and his return. And so it's sometimes hard to differentiate which one's he talking about at any given time. Is this stuff talking about what happens before AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem? Or is this stuff happening before Jesus comes back? Okay, but those are the passages that deal with this great tribulation. There's difficulty in figuring out how much of it has already happened. How much of it has already happened? Because there have been incidences where people have proclaimed themselves to be God in the Jewish temple, just like we've grown up hearing that an antichrist will do one day. It's already happened at least twice, where someone proclaimed themselves to be God in the temple and directed people's worship to them. I've told you before, the destruction of Jerusalem doesn't get enough credit in our church history understanding. That it was a horrific time for God's people. There was horrific persecution going on. The Roman Empire was, was attacking the church potentially like it never has been up till then and hasn't been since then. I mean, you, you've heard stories how these emperors would would light their gardens at night by, by putting Christians on stakes and burning them at night so they could walk in their gardens. I mean, this was the horrific persecution that God's people were experiencing. It would have been hard to tell those people there's something greater that's coming in the future. I mean, can, can it get any worse than what we're experiencing right now? Those people probably would have said. So that's where there's some difficulty is... How much of this applied to an event that already has happened and how much of it still applies to the future? We can agree, though, that there is a tribulation that either was coming or is still to come. The last days are seen to be a time of suffering and wandering away from the faith. Still in Matthew 24, verse 10, it says, And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So there's going to be a lot of walking away from the faith. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings 
of demons. There's an apostasy coming. There's a time of falling away. In 2 Timothy 3, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. A time of apostasy where, where doctrine begins to break down, uh, the church begins to break down as people come into the church, claim to be Christians, but they're not Christians. And, and they're seeking to destroy through false teaching. They're seeking to destroy the establishment of the church. The great tribulation will precede the return of Jesus. Back in Matthew 24. Verse 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So we're told after the tribulation, whenever it happens, after it Jesus comes back. After it, Jesus comes back. And he gathers his elect from both heaven and earth. Which again implies that there are people here who are saved. People here are saved. Which leads me into why I think this supports no rapture. Believers are present for this time of suffering and wandering. They will be harmed. Matthew 24 verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, rapture people would say, yep, there's people here that are God's people, but they're Israel. They're Israel. So they would have no problem saying, yeah, yeah, there are going to be people here who are delivered up. They're put to death. They're hated by all nations. But it's Jewish people. We've already looked at Jews and Gentiles being united together as one. So if we're, if we're grounded in that, and I look at this passage, now I have to see Christians being here. Christians are here, so there can't be a rapture. If Jews and Gentiles, church and Israel, have been brought together as one people of God, and God's people are here, then the arguments for the rapture begin to fall apart. Because you can't have God's people taken away. And God's people still be here. Alright? Um, so we know there's people that belong to God that are here. Um, Revelation 6, 9-11. through 11. This is when there are saints in heaven that are crying out to God. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You've got people in heaven crying out for God's justice. How long until you avenge our blood? How long until you send Jesus to bring justice? That justice that we talk about in 2 Thessalonians 1. When Jesus comes back, he relieves his people and brings justice to the ungodly. Before that happens, there are people in heaven crying out, How long, O Lord? 
Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Basically, the answer these saints get is more of God's people still need to die. Before Jesus comes back, more of God's people still need to die. Revelation 7, we learn that these people are coming out of the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation. So kind of to go back to what you asked, we're going to talk about this again in more detail. But rapture people would believe that God's people are here during the midst of tribulation and God's wrath. They would just say that it's Israel. I would say that it's Israel and the church. So nobody would disagree that God's, some of God's people are here for all this stuff happening. Does that make sense? And I'm saying if that is the case, and I understand what you're saying, if that is the case, what we would agree on is that God's people are here for them. A rapture person would say Israel, saved Israel is here. I would say Israel and the church are here. But we still have to wrestle with the fact, how can any of God's people be here during that time if his wrath being poured out? But what we would agree on is that at least some of God's people are. And we'll try to work through that as we get into the actual text in Second Thessalonians. Um, but just to say, like, you really can't argue for the rapture and saying that God's people can't be here for wrath because everybody believes that God's people get saved during that time. So they're here and they're experiencing all that's going on during that time. Um, there's also the temptation for believers to wander during this time in Matthew 24, 4. Um, And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. So there's a warning there that during this time, don't go astray. The implication is that Christians are here and that they have to be guarded against wandering away from false teachers. Um, You can also write down 2 Timothy 3.5. Believers are also told to recognize the great tribulation as a sign before Jesus' return. Matthew 24.3 and he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will all these things be? And Jesus tells them to look for these signs of his coming. So the believers, the disciples are told, this is what's to happen before Jesus comes back. They are told to look for these things to happen. It would be inconsistent if they're not going to be here to look for these things to happen if they're raptured away. They're told to look for these things. Um... Luke twenty one twenty eight. See if that's basically the same thing, real quick. Yeah. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. As you see this great tribulation happening around you, it should amplify, intensify your desire for Jesus to come back. It's communicated in a way that believers are supposed to look for it and recognize it that Jesus is coming back soon. Tribulation is actually cut short because of God's people being present. Matthew twenty four twenty two. I mean, this is a strong case for seeing that God's people are here. 
And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the length of the tribulation is based on the fact that God has people here that he doesn't want to have to endure it longer than they need to. It's cut short for the sake of God's elect. We also see the, the, the big New to Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 37. A loss that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he, will, he shall be saved out of it. It's cut short for God's people. All right. We looked at some arguments for the rapture. Here's some, maybe some even non-textual arguments against the rapture, just in taking everything that we've looked at to get today. Number one, there's no explicit teaching found in the New Testament about the church being taken away before a great tribulation. There's no explicit teaching found in the New Testament about the church being taken away before a great tribulation. Now, rapture people infer that. They infer it from like Revelation 3.10 where he will keep them from the hour of trial. But we already looked at the fact that that word is actually used in another context where it means not taking them out of here, but guarding them while they are here. So there's no explicit teaching. When the disciples say, when are you coming back? There's no explicit teaching where Jesus says, I'm going to come get you guys and then there's going to be a lot of tribulation. Then I'm going to come back. There's no explicit teaching. Number two, one would expect teaching on escaping a great trial if it's going to happen. I mean, the Bible talks a ton about tribulation and suffering for the believer. We've already looked at it. I mean, it talks a ton about it. It's promised to us. If there's a really intense time coming, you would expect there to be some type of teaching that says, be encouraged because you won't be here for the absolute worst of it. Now, rapture people infer that teaching, but there's not an explicit passage that says, Jesus comes and gets his people out of here for this great time. You would expect that teaching to be prevalent if it was going to happen. You would expect that encouragement to be coming from Paul as he writes to people. And we've already seen in 1 Thessalonians, these guys were experiencing suffering. You would expect them to write and say, be thankful that you won't be here for the worst of it. We don't have that explicit teaching that we would expect. A pre-tribulational, meaning Jesus comes back in the rapture, a pre-tribulational rapture, before the rapture, necessitates that Matthew 24 be primarily the Jewish people. I mean, people that believe in the rapture, I think there's 100% agreement that if you believe in a rapture, you believe Matthew 24 is primarily written to Jewish people. Because Jewish people are the ones that get saved in the tribulation. The problem is that the disciples are the one asking the question. The disciples are the one asking the question. They are saved and they are part of the church, right? They're the foundation of the church. The apostles, they're the foundation of building the church. Why would Jesus answer this question to Jewish unsaved people when it's people from the church that are asking the question? If you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, it necessitates that Matthew 24 is heavily for Jewish unsaved people at that time. And yet you have saved people of the church asking the question. 
the disciples, had Jesus come back during their lifetime, they would have been raptured away. And nowhere really does the Great Tribulation seem to be just for Israel. We don't have that explicit teaching that this is just a time for Israel. And then lastly, the major rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, which we're about to get to, that is the major rapture passage. If you believe in a rapture, that's the rapture. Like That's where the Bible teaches about the rapture. But there's absolutely no mention of escaping tribulation in that passage. You would expect the major rapture passage to talk about the fact that you are going to escape the great tribulation. And it doesn't mention it. Not that this is really that relevant, but to me it even supports it more. My mom, I mean, she's a rapture woman. I mean, she, she grew up in, in the church believing in the rapture. And, and I was talking to her about this, and I was like, Mom, do you really think First Thessalonians 4 is about the rapture? And she was like, no, that's the second coming. And I was like, exactly, exactly. Like, here's someone who says, I definitely believe in the rapture. And she reads scripture and says, <laughs> ignorantly not recognizing that this is the rapture passage, says, that has to be about the second coming. That's when Jesus comes back. That, that's, that's strong support for someone who is just reading the Bible for what it is, wanting to believe the Bible for what it says. And she reads it and says, I don't see the rapture there. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a major passage for the rapture. And it doesn't seem to communicate what you would expect it to communicate if it's talking about that. All right, real quick, a question. When will the tribulation happen? When will the tribulation happen? There's three views on this. Some say it's already happened in the past. It happened when the Jerusalem fell, when the temple was destroyed. So some would say all this talk about tribulation, all this talk about great trial, it's already happened. It's already happened. These Roman emperors were, were far more cruel than we realize. They were persecuting the church. They were dressing up like animals and raping women and, and, and would have been known as beasts, which is pictured in the book of Revelation. People would see that and say, that stuff's happened. The church would have seen that happening. John even says in the book of Revelation that these things are to come to pass shortly. So some people would say this stuff's already happened. Second view. It's happening now. It's happening now. You would have a hard time convincing some believers today that a greater tribulation is coming. If we went over to China some of these Muslim countries and got some believers together and said, let me teach you about the great tribulation that's going to come in the future. You might have a lot of them walk out and say, you got to be kidding me. You're talking about something that worse is going to happen in the future. Have you been here lately? Do you see the persecution that we're enduring right now? We are so disconnected from what our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing right now today. We read and say, well, we're not experiencing tribulation. It must be in the future. Context is so important, though. If you were in a different country today, you would probably read these passages and say, Jesus must be coming back any day now because it is intense. We are dying for our faith like we never have before. Not me and Luke were talking. John Piper's even predicting that the more our country falls into a debased mindset, that more and more persecution is liable to come to our country as well. One incident he's talking about, like if... Um, if gay marriage were to ever be legalized in our country, that it would begin to make Christians have to 
either take a stand for what we believe in or endure some type of persecution from our government. One, one case in point that he references, there's a lady who's a, a photographer who's coming into trouble with the law because she's refusing to photograph a gay marriage um, ceremony. If it becomes legalized, they're saying that she will not have the right to refuse that. And so she'll either have to choose to go to prison potentially or let down her standards of what it means to, um, to understand what a, what a, uh, a God-honoring union is between a man and a woman. That's simply to say that it could be happening progressively, meaning that it may have already started in one area of our world and it's coming this way. It could be happening now. The third perspective is that it will happen in the future. It will happen in the future. And I would say that it doesn't have to be this way, but right now I would lean more towards um, there still being a greater tribulation to come. That's kind of where I'm at right now. That I think a lot of stuff probably did happen in 8070 with the fall of Jerusalem. And I may be wrong, and all this stuff happened back then. But as I read these passages, it seems to communicate to me that there's still a greater time to come where more and more of God's people experience it. It's not just pockets of it. That it's going to be more of a global type tribulation that's never been like this before. So I would kind of lean more towards it still coming in the future. But I'm open to the fact that it may be happening now. And I'm also open to the fact that it may have already happened in the past. Um, what I really have a hard time believing is that I am some way exempt from it. Um, just because of what Scripture teaches about tribulation, the promises of it, the fact that I see Israel and the church being one people of God, I don't see Scripture explicitly teaching that we're going to escape it. And if for no other reason, there are people of God that are there in it. I mean, we see that. And if we're not just seeing that as Israel, then there's a good chance it's us. It's a good chance that it's us that's coming through the tribulation. And it's us that's clothed in these robes when we get to heaven because we were killed for our faith. So some application agreements as we get ready to leave. We're ready to eat and then leave. These are some things that coming back to the fact, these are things that we can agree on. We can, we can disagree about rapture, no rapture, tribulation that we do or don't go through. So things that we can agree on is that we don't need to fear any tribulation in our future. We need not fear any tribulation in our future. If we do experience the tribulation, the great tribulation, we will definitely experience tribulation on a smaller scale, if nothing else. Scripture promises that. We don't have to fear any tribulation in our future. Romans 8. Thirty-five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come. Powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't have to fear any future tribulation. Whether we do go through it or don't go through it, we don't have to fear it. Because Romans 8.28, all things work together for those who love God. Secondly, the more persecution we see, the more we can be comforted by our coming victory. The more persecution we see, the more comforted we can be about our coming victory. Revelation 12, 
And Anna, this is where I kind of see the persecution to some degree coming from Satan. In Revelation 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels went down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. I mean, Satan has been on a mission ever since the cross, realizing my time is short and I will do whatever I can. I'll do whatever I can during this time that I have to wreak havoc on God's people. So the more we see persecution intensify, I think it should encourage us all the more that this is coming, that Satan's anger is coming towards the church because he knows his time is short. Third, true believers will not become apostate. We talked about the fact that many will fall away during the Great Tribulation. The comfort to us is that true believers will not become apostate, but we must heed the warnings. Jude 24 talks about how God is the one that causes us to persevere. John 10 talks about how Jesus will not lose any that God has given to him. Nobody can snatch him from the hand. But we must heed the warnings. 2 Peter 1.10 says that we are to make our calling and election all the more sure. That it's our responsibility to test ourselves, to make sure we're in the faith, and to persevere. To make our calling and election sure. How? By submitting to the Spirit and enduring in our faith until the end. And then lastly, we will be spared from God's wrath. And endure persecution. And that's where the comfort is. That at any point as God's wrath gets poured out on this earth. It is not for us. And it will not affect us. Romans 5.9 Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him. From the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Both talk about us being saved from God's wrath. That we are not destined for wrath. That we have been spared from wrath. But we have been not been promised to be spared from tribulation. In fact, we're promised the opposite. That we will experience tribulation. Alright, I'm going to pray for us. And then I'll take any questions before we um, set up for lunch. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the comfort that you give us in Scripture. That you have up front told us that times will be difficult for us as Christians if we choose to follow you. That we can anticipate hostility towards us. God, I pray that we would be convicted if we're not experiencing that. God, in my own life, I pray that I would be convicted that I am not experiencing these type of things that you've promised to those that truly follow you. God, help us to examine to see whether or not it's because of our lack of boldness to proclaim to others that we are on the side of Christ. God, I pray that we would examine ourselves. Are we blending in too much with this lost world to where this lost world doesn't know to persecute us? They don't identify us as Christians. That we're not living separate enough from the things of this world for them to know to come after us. 
God, help us to be convicted by the fact that we should be suffering if we're not. Not that we go looking for suffering, God, but that, we, that when it's brought upon us, that it's brought upon us for the right reasons, that we have aligned ourselves with you. God, that we would find encouragement. God, that we would uh, be faithful to lift up our brothers and sisters around the world today that are experiencing tribulation in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian. God, that we would recognize that they are going through tribulation right now. And God, I pray that all this talk of tribulation would point us to the hope of your second coming. That we would anticipate the day when justice is brought to this earth. When all tribulation stops. When your people are are given the rest that you have earned for us. God, I pray that we would look to that day with hope and encouragement. That we would encourage each other with that. That as you delay the second coming, we would use that opportunity to draw people to repentance. Recognizing that it seems very likely that once you come back, there will be no more opportunity for it. God, I pray that we'd be faithful to share the gospel this week when we have opportunities. That we would look for those opportunities and be faithful with them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.